All right, we're in 1 Timothy and chapter 3. It is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, uncontentious, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been going through this book of uh, letter of First Timothy, and it was a letter written by Paul to Timothy to help him instruct the believers there at Ephesus on how to conduct themselves in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. After some introductory comments uh, in chapter 1, the first thing he emphasizes is prayer. I'm just giving a very brief review here. Specifically, that men in every place ought to lift up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Next, he gave some instructions concerning the women in the church. We spent some time looking at the importance that both Jesus and Paul placed on the ministry of women. We did that to help help balance out these verses in 1 Timothy, where Paul taught that men are to have the primary spiritual responsibility in the church, the spiritual responsibility for leadership in the church. And then this section that we're looking at today that we just read flows naturally from these verses at the end of chapter 2, which speak of authority in the local assembly. This section that we're dealing with presents the qualifications for an elder or overseer of the church. And I say elder or overseer because judging from the way these terms are used by Paul in other places, we, I think, can say that it's clear that these terms are interchangeable, elder and overseer. That is, they are both designations for the local leadership in the New Testament church. In this letter, the word overseer is used, or uh, if you have a King James, it says bishop. Now, I think that is kind of an unfortunate trans translation uh, because that term has come to mean, or it's come to have uh, certain religious connotations and implications that kind of came in later in church history that really are unwarranted from what the word itself means, overseer. Uh, what am I saying? Well, the, this term bishop uh, has come to have a tendency uh, to mean someone who's more than just a local leader. It's like a regional uh, someone who's in charge of a bigger area than just the local church. 
In fact, what you see in the in the first few centuries of Christianity is that there is a tendency towards uh, centralized control. Uh, the churches were uh, not just uh, groups where there was uh, elders and, and deacons, but there was uh, the idea that maybe some churches should be over other churches, and then that person was kind of called a bishop of that region instead of just uh, a local church uh, leadership. And so that got to be, I think, a problem uh, Bigger churches uh, tended to want to have more authority than smaller churches, and then then you got you got bishops that were over other uh, elders. Then you had archbishops that were over bishops, and then eventually you get a pope. And so this is not at all what uh, Paul's talking about here when he uses this word overseer. So that's why I think it's good to avoid this term bishop. Basically, the term overseer speaks of the function or duty of the office holder. He's an overseer. That's his function. When Paul writes to Titus, he uses another designation, which is elder. So let's turn over to Titus chapter 1. And I think I'll just read this section too because it's a good... uh, comparison between this section where Paul is speaking to Timothy about uh, the elders there at Ephesus, and now this is in Crete. Crete was actually a younger church. Uh, they have uh, a little bit different, uh, little bit different criteria because uh, basically uh, they were starting from scratch there at Crete, and and uh, Ephesus had been established at least for a few years already. But anyway, here at, at Crete, we're in uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you, namely, if any man be above reproach. Now I want you to note there in verse 5 he says elders, okay? Appoint elders in every city. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe and and not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer. Now, that's why I read this section. He goes from elder to overseer. So you see they're interchangeable. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not uh, fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching that, that he may be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. So the point there is that those two terms mean the same. They're talking about the same person, same office. Uh, why would there be two designations for the same position? Well, I think one describes the task, what the person was actually doing. He was an overseer. Um, The other, the elder, describes something of the personality of the individual. He's an older one, an elder. That's what the word means. It does not mean that he has to be greatly advanced in age. 
but rather I think it speaks of his status and spiritual maturity in relationship to, to the others in that particular assembly. So he's, he's more mature, he's further along spiritually. Uh, usually, uh, often that comes with age, but not necessarily. So anyway, uh, the point is, elder describes the man, overseer describes his function. But they are talking about the same office, same position. So as I go through these qualifications, uh, I'll probably go back and forth between elder and overseer because they mean the same thing. Um, maybe just to nail this down, I know we've looked at this in the past, but there's some here that haven't seen this before. So let's turn to Acts chapter 20 very quickly here. This is when Paul was uh, on a, his way to Jerusalem. He sent for the, the leadership of the church at Ephesus. Acts chapter 20, and we won't read all the way through this, but just, just to make the point here, verse 17. And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. So he's calling the elders here from Ephesus. That would be the ones we're talk, actually talking about today. Uh, so that's verse 17, but then you look down at verse 28. He's talking to these elders. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. So again, the interchangeable nature of these words elder and overseer. Okay. So let's see what Paul says uh, about these overseer elders. The first thing he does is to emphasize a proper regard for this office of overseer. He says it's a fine work. We're back in 1 Timothy now, chapter 3, verse 1. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. The... uh, New International Version says it's a noble task. So this is a noble, fine work. Now, he's not saying that every, every man in a congregation should aspire to this position. There's actually some groups that teach that. I don't think that's what he's saying. What he is saying is that if anyone does desire to serve the church in this position, it's a commendable thing. It's a, it's a good thing for a person to want to have that position. So he goes on then and says, if anyone aspires to that, what are the qualifications? What are the characteristics to look for in such a person? Well, first of all, we're told that he must be above reproach. Above reproach. King James says blameless. The actual um, meaning of the Greek word has to do with there's no handle for criticism. Nothing, nothing that anyone can latch onto a handle for criticism. He should be one in whom no valid criticism can be made. Now, I, mentioned, I emphasize valid there because, of course, there's going to be people that will find uh, things to criticize uh, a person about, but a valid uh, handle for criticism. Nothing affording nothing of which an adversary can take hold of. 
So that's the idea, respectable, uh, above reproach. Um, no, I just say this here as we go through this list. I think this is actually kind of the capstone, the one that kind of encompasses all the others. But no Christian leader is perfect. And what you're looking for is a, a basic maturity, a basic uh, person who's living a upright life. Uh, if you take these things in the extreme, it would disqualify just about everybody that's ever been an elder. And as I was going through this uh, list, thinking about myself and taking some of the things, you know, in a very absolute sense, I felt like Samson taking hold of the pillars about to pull the roof in on myself. <laughs> but I don't think we're supposed to take them quite that way. Uh, they're principles that are guidelines. Uh, so, no perfect leadership, but there are godly, mature believers who can shepherd God's people. There, the, I think the idea, the basic idea here is that there should be no, not be any great moral lapses or grievous character faults in this person. Uh, things that people either inside the church or outside the church, especially outside the church, he brings that up later, could point to and say, well, oh, so that's what Christianity is like. You know, a leader is uh, a pastor, an elder, overseer, is in a position where there's a little more of a spotlight on his life. And so Paul's concerned that, that when that spotlight is put on him, that it doesn't show some grievous moral faults um, or lapses. Um, the prospective overseer must have a favorable testimony with two groups, those inside the church, in other words, the church community, and those outside the church, the outside community. And Paul actually deals with that second group, the outsiders, in verse 7. So we'll get to that in a bit. But what he's saying here is that within the church, the elder should be known as a man of high moral character. The next qualification for an elder is that he is the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. Now you might say that sounds simple. Actually, there's quite a bit of dispute on what that means. Uh, let me give you some examples of various interpretations. First of all, some people say that it's, this means that the overseer must be married. You've got to be married if you're a husband or one wife, right? Uh, the problem with that interpretation is that Paul himself could not have been an elder. Probably Timothy couldn't have either. As far as we know, he wasn't married at this time anyway. More importantly, Jesus himself couldn't have been an elder. So that's probably not what Paul's aiming at here. Another interpretation is that the elder cannot be a polygamist. This seems 
unlikely to us today because we don't have too much polygamy, but there were, it was still sometimes practiced amongst the Jews, not so much amongst the Romans, but amongst the Jews there was still some polygamy. It's a possible interpretation, but I would say that's, an un, uh, again, a very unlikely interpretation. Another way of taking this phrase is, is that the elder must, be, must not be a man who has divorced his wife or married more than once. Uh, some even take this to mean that remarriage, even after the death of a spouse, disqualifies a man from being an elder. So I would say that uh, we're again dealing with things that are possible interpretations, but not the most likely. Most commentators think that these views are too restrictive. This thing about remarriage being a disqualification. You know, Paul actually goes later on and says there's nothing wrong with remarriage. He talks about uh, um, widows who, uh, at least younger widows, he says he, he encourages them to remarry. So there's nothing intrinsically wrong with remarriage. And so what are we talking about here? I think we're talking about something in general. It means a person seeking to be an elder, uh, if he's married, must be a loyal husband demonstrating to all who know him a loving marriage in all purity. Now, again, that would seem like a very obvious qualification, wouldn't it? Why was that necessary? Well, it was necessary because of the immorality of the surrounding culture in which the, this letter was written. The ancient world was in a state of moral chaos, and in some ways this was even true of the Jewish people. As I said, uh, polygamy was still sometimes practiced, but the bigger issue was that divorce was very common amongst the Jews and even more so amongst the Romans. So that was a much bigger problem. Divorce was tragically easy in, in society in general and even amongst the Jews. As we previously pointed out, women were not held in high esteem amongst many of the Jewish leaders, and amongst the Romans, things were even worse. Now, I want to demonstrate this by uh, telling you about a few of the Roman leaders. The emperor Augustus said, If we could do without wives, we would be rid of that nuisance. Not too high a view of marriage. Uh, the typical Roman woman or woman, Roman wife back then had virtually no rights, and marriage was in a mess. Caesar and Anthony had f four wives each. Herod had nine wives. Nero, who was emperor around the time that this was written, he takes the cake. I mean in a bad way. He was the, Nero was the third husband of one of his wives and the fifth husband of another and a number of wives and on top of that he was married to one or two men. So even in the highest positions in society they were overrun with immorality. 
So you can see why Paul would want the leaders in the church to be examples of purity, stability, and the sanctity of marriage. I might add that this qualification is becoming more and more important in our day simply because of the way marriage is being distorted and demeaned in our society. It's a very important criteria. And uh, just another side note here, this little phrase, the husband of one wife, shows the fallacy, this kind of on the other side of the picture, shows the fallacy of what the Roman Catholic Church has taught about celibacy being a requirement for church leadership. It's actually good for a leader in the church to be married. I think we could certainly say that's implied by what we're reading here, the husband of one wife. You know, this, this idea of celibacy and... Uh, staying away from marriage came in early. Uh, in fact, it was even prevalent or, or beginning here in the time that uh, Paul wrote this letter. If you uh, look over in chapter 4, he says, But the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to the deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, he's going to tell you what some of these doctrines are like by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage. See, he's saying that's a doctrine of demons. So, singleness was not a requirement, but the norm, I would say the norm for an elder would be a married man. Someone who had shown already by the leadership in the home, and we'll look at that in a minute, how leadership works and should work. So the husband of one wife, someone who has demonstrated an ability to exercise godly leadership in the church or in the home, uh, will be a good uh, candidate for being a pastor, an elder, an overseer. The next thing that Paul speaks about is being temperate, prudent, and respectable. Since these are somewhat akin, I'll deal with them together. These terms speak of a person who is vigilant and disciplined in their personal life. One who is watchful over his own soul one who lives an orderly life of self-control. In terms of outward behavior, behavior, the elder should be dignified and well-behaved. In other words, I think these terms speak of a well-ordered life. This is something to look for in a person who's going to be an elder or an overseer. Then he goes on and talks about being hospitable. Again, I think the cultural context is important. There were no motels back in the first century. The equivalent would have been the inn, I-N-N, inn. But the inn was not a place you'd like to be in quite often. You know, 
is talked about, we're, we're told in the scriptures that Joseph and Mary tried to find a place at an inn there in Bethlehem, but they couldn't. And at reading about uh, what it was like in some of these inns, that may have, may have been God's providential protection upon them, uh, that there was no room there. They were, these inns were very bad places. They tended to be dirty, dingy, and immoral. So in the Christian church where wandering teachers and preachers, evangelists and others were very, quite common, and actually many of the converts were slaves, hospitality was of great importance. I'm just trying to give a little feel for the cultural context here. This was something that was, uh, this hospitality is something that's stressed in many places in the New Testament. Uh, and that not just for elders, but for Christians in general. Uh, I'll just turn back here real quick. In Acts chapter 12, Paul says, just looking at some general criteria for Christians, he says, uh, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Practicing hospitality. It was a need. That was Rome. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 12. And that's verse 13. Practicing hospitality. And Paul, in, in the letter we're in here in First Timothy, uh, again, speaking of the widows, uh, talking about uh, one who is a, a widow indeed, uh, uh, verse 10 of chapter 5 in First Timothy. I know I'm jumping around here. I hope you can stay with me. Uh, having, a good reputa- having a reputa- reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers. See, there it is. Hospitality to strangers. Very uh, important thing in the New Testament church. And still today, needful in many situations. Let me just show you one other one that I, I'd never noticed before and I thought was interesting. Uh, this would be in Third John. talking about people who are ministering to the church, uh, coming in from the outside, ministering to the church. Uh, Therefore, we ought to support such men that we may be fellow workers with them. But the uh, alternative reading there in verse 8, therefore we ought to support, is actually... Receive such men as guests. Just take them in. They're, they're going out for the gospel's sake, you see. So we ought to receive such men as guests in our home. So hospitality. The next thing that Paul brings up is that an overseer must also be one who is able to teach they must possess an aptitude for instructing others. Now, in the early church, there were men who were recognized as gifted teachers 
who were not elders. They just had the gift of teaching. Just because you have the gift of teaching doesn't mean you should be an elder. But the elder should have the gift of teaching. He should be able to teach anyway. Um, he should not be ignorant of God's word, and he should be able to instruct others in it. And this would include being able to rightly refute those who are in opposition to the truth. We read that in the, uh, there in Titus when we read through the section um, concerning elders. He says, uh, able to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. One writer said this, Considering how much Paul's mind was occupied with the dangers caused by in, in Ephesus by false teachers, we cannot doubt that this requirement has the effect of laying on the overseer the responsibility of correcting the false teaching by imparting true teaching. In other words, if you're able to teach it, it means you can teach the truth and refute the error. And so uh, I think surely that was partly on Paul's mind because he spends quite a bit of time about the false teaching that was creeping in. So an elder needs to be able to deal with this false teaching accurately and scripturally. Well, another writer said, The church has been at its weakest when this basic requirement, requirement has been absent from leaders. The leader needs to be able, an elder needs to be able to teach. And if you don't have an elder that's able to teach, you're going to have a weak situation in the church. It's, they're not going to be instructed properly. So the point is that an elder should have the ability and willingness to be a teacher of God's people an ability and a willingness to do that. Now, the next two qualifications, I think, actually go together. Not being addicted to wine and not being pugnacious. Now, I never even knew the word pugnacious till I got a New American Standard Bible. <laughs> so, if you don't know what that means, it means to be quarrelsome or argumentative. You're not supposed to be it does kind of sound that way, doesn't it? Pugnacious. <laughs> but anyway, now I think there's actually a reason that Paul puts not being addicted to wine and not being argumentative together. But let's look at the wine part first. The overseer cannot be one who has the habit of drinking too much wine, and he certainly can't be a drunkard. Again, you might say this is obvious. Surely this is obvious. But again, these people were only recently coming out of paganism where the excessive use of wine was very widespread. I say excessive use because in the ancient world, wine drinking was common. We're not talking about wine drinking per se. We're talking about excessive use, not addicted uh, to wine. Often the water supply was dangerous and wine was the most natural drink but overindulgence was a common practice and would have been a disgrace to the ministry. The Christian leader must not allow himself any overindulgence, and especially an overindulgence that would lessen his discernment and strain, strain his testimony. So I said that I think these two to go, go together, this thing of addicted to wine and being pugnacious. Um, why are they brought up together? Well, I think the book of Proverbs tells us why. 
Wine is a mocker, and strong drink a brawler. Strong drink a brawler. Uh, another verse in Proverbs 23:29 says, Who has contention? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without number? Those who linger long over wine. Uh, even today, you know, we talk about barroom brawls. It's, they're not uncommon. But uh, uh, Paul realized this back then, that being pugnacious or quarrelsome went right along with being addicted, often does, being addicted to wine. Drunkenness often produces disorderly conduct. And, of course, neither one of those, drunkenness or disorderly conduct, is permissible to a prospective elder. Rather, instead of being pugnacious, Paul then goes on to say, but gentle, uncontentious, free from the love of money. Gentle, uncontentious. In other words, he can't be a bully. He can't be bad-tempered. He can't be argumentative. He must demonstrate a patient forbearance, a peaceable, and I like this, I didn't come up with it, sweet reasonableness, a sweet reasonableness. You should see that in an elder, an overseer, a sweet reasonableness. The commentators actually point out that the word in Greek, which is translated in the New American Standard gentle, uh, is virtually untranslatable by one English word. It had so many different aspects to the meaning in Greek that to try to put it in one English word is about impossible. We use the word gentle, but it doesn't capture everything. Um, the great Greek philosopher Aristotle described the word this way. He, he said this is what it means. To pardon human failings, to look on the intention, not just the action, to remember good rather than evil, to bear being injured. So it had all of those nuances to it, this thing of being gentle. Um, another commentator said, if there is a matter of dispute or dis debate, it can be settled by law or it can be settled by love. The latter is what this word implies. Settling things in love. Gentle. Uncontentious. I just thought, you know, how many church situations would be different if we just take that principle. Let's settle this in love. I'm going into this situation. I'm going to settle it in love as best I can. Settling disagreements in love. So, how important is that? But it is also true that there's a kind of love that's not good. And Paul brings that up next. Being free from the love of money. Free from the love of money. Paul says this later on in Timothy. Uh, he says... For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And by 
longing for it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. Paul said you cannot, <laughs> if there's a love of money there, you should not be an elder. You should not be a pastor. And I think it's another way of saying that the overseer can't be covetous or greedy. He must not be a person who makes the acquisition of earthly treasure his chief goal. We know from this letter later on that there were some uh, people with riches that had become part of the church of Ephesus. Paul has some instructions for them. But you see, when that's the case, when there's some people with some money in a church, you know what happens? There's always a temptation for the leadership to treat that person or those people a little differently. That's not good. That's partiality. But if there's any love of money there, you see, you're not going to deal with people the same. And that's, Paul says, that this is something you have to guard against. Now, it's right for an overseer to be compensated for his work. But money has been the downfall of many ministries. It's not wrong for a person that's in this position to be compensated. In fact, Paul brings up this later on in uh, the letter, in, in chapter uh, 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So it's not wrong for uh, a pastor to receive a reasonable wage for what he does. But it is certainly wrong to seek that position for money. That's not why a person becomes a pastor. One person said, he that serves God for money will serve the devil for better wages. I just heard recently on the radio about how incredibly, I'll say it this way, filthy rich how filthy rich some of these tel televangelists are. It's incredible. They fly in their private jet from one of their mansions to another. That, that is a, a blot on the name of Christ. So, free from the love of money. Very important criteria for an elder. Next thing we see, an elder, an overseer, must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. The elder's first duty is to his own home. If a person desires to be an elder and has a chaotic family, there's something amiss, something's wrong. How can they care for the family of God if they're not caring for their own family at home? As one writer put it, it is important for a leader to command the respect of his children as well as commanding the respect of others. Lack of proper management in the home life disqualifies the person for, the leadership, in, for leadership in the church. 
Another person, G. Campbell Morgan, said, No service for God is of any value which is contradicted by the life at home. I mean, these are strong things. But actually, we see from the scripture that this is not just a criteria for a pastor or an elder. It's a criteria for every married man, every Christian married man. I think it's especially true for those who would seek to oversee the household of God, but it's true for all of us who are Christian married men. Now basically, what we're saying here is that the married elder should seek to be a good family man, one who manages his household well. Paul then says that the elders should not be a new convert, not a novice. And he gives a reason for this, lest they become conceited or prideful and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. That's always something to be guarded against also. That's not just for a pastor, but this thing of pride. We're talking about pride here. Uh, guarding against becoming inflated and puffed up with our own sense of importance. And Satan pushes that on us. That's the way he is. And this is the condemnation that came upon him because of pride. Puffed up with his own sense of importance. Paul felt like this could be a particular snare for a new convert who is put in a position of leadership too soon. I think this is what he's talking about anyway. A new convert put in that position. A young Christian has not yet learned through many afflictions and temptations and failings how weak and utterly dependent upon God he really is. Hasn't had time enough to fall enough to realize that. Uh, the devil fell into condemnation because of pride. Pride made angels devils, and pride comes before destruction. An exaggerated view of our own importance and abilities will lead to an ungodlike ministry. Ministers who think of themselves more highly than they should. And I think he's saying a young convert, you know, well, boy, I'm, look where I am. Christian leadership is all about serving, not about lording and over other people. In fact, authority is earned by sacrificial living. A new convert may not yet have been humbled enough to serve in humility. Well, the last qualification Paul mentions is similar to the first one he wrote about in verse 2. Remember he said, an overseer must be above reproach. Well, in verse 7 he says, he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he may not fall into the reproach and snare of the devil. He's speaking of a good reputation for those outside, with those outside the church. In other words, in the community around. You have the church community, have to have, a good, have to be respectable in the eyes of the people you're ministering to, but you also have to be above reproach in the community uh, around. A good reputation for those outside the church. 
he should be known, I think, as a honest and honorable man. That's the way people ought to view him. They may not particularly like him. I'm thinking of people like Vaillard up there. Uh, no one could deny that he was a respectable, honest, honorable man. There was people that didn't like him, but that was different. They, you know, they knew that this was an honest man. And that's the way it's, the community ought to be able to look at the pastors, the elders, overseers of a particular church and know this person is an honorable, honest person. What snare is the devil? What snare of the devil is Paul speaking about in this last verse? Well, I think the idea is if there's anything, if there's anything those outside the church knew that was wrong in the elder's life, Satan would be right there to blast him with accusations and try to defame the church. Satan's going to use that against the church, against that person, and against the church. Another variation of this has to do with a prospective elder who has fallen into sin and recently repented, but there's not yet been sufficient time for him to reestablish a good reputation before the watching world. That takes time. If a Christian falls, you don't just uh, automatically say everything's okay. You, I mean, even after they've truly repented, it takes some time to regain your reputation. So, if that if that time hasn't been there, you put somebody uh, in back in leadership that's fallen recently. The devil's going to be right there in that situation to reproach this Christian for his recent fall and to bring uh, slander against the church. The slanderer will whisper that the world, what the world is saying in order to assault that person's confidence, his character, and his conscience. So if there's any recent sin, any recent sin there in that person's life, for Satan or the world to point out to, you can be sure they, they're going to do it. You're a disgrace to Christ. That'll be the accent. You're a disgrace to Christ. Your reputation is ruined. You can't be of any service to the Lord. You're doomed to live a miserable, useless Christian life. You're a disgrace to the church. I mean, that's, uh, that's the condemnation, uh, the reproach, and the snare of the devil that he'll bring into those kind of situations. Now, that's a lie. If the person's truly repented, that is a lie. But the devil will try to incapacitate the repentant Christian with that type of reproach. The fact is, a tainted reputation can be rebuilt. It takes some time. It takes patient continuance and well-doing. A tarnished testimony can be restored through a consistent walk over time. A Christian who has damaged his reputation can yet have a good reputation and meet the qualifications for an elder through diligence, discipline, perseverance, and the grace of God. So, um, we're talking about the devil trying to bring on reproach and the snare for those who... Don't have have not regained a good reputation uh, after a fall. You know, 
um, this thing of being above reproach. I think that uh, it's good to remember that we're not talking about what the person was like before they were a Christian. If that was the case, Paul couldn't fit the criteria because he had he was pretty bad before he was converted. In fact, it rule out most godly men. It it, it rule out at least uh, quite a few of the most godly men and greatest trophies of grace the church has known. I was thinking of John Newton, for instance. He was a notorious blasphemer and a slave trader before he was converted. Well, you might say, well, you know, he can't be an elder. He can't be a pastor. He's not above reproach. Well, that's not what Paul was talking about here. He's talking about after you became a Christian. Uh, his thinking of John Newton, his previous sin was very notorious, but so was his conversion and the testimony that he had of the amazing grace, what amazing grace can do, saved a wretch like me. Uh, Newton said, I like I liked what he put on his, he had this put on his tombstone. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, the servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he once labored to destroy. So this thing of uh, being above reproach, we're talking about after you become a Christian. Um, So anyway, a tainted reputation can be rebuilt. Well, there's a few things that I'd like to say in closing. I think it's clear that elders were to be publicly set apart for office. That's what Timothy was instructing, uh, uh, what Paul was instructing Timothy to do and what Paul was instructing Titus to do there in the sections we've read. Publicly set apart for office. In other words, the elders were not made elders in secret. They were set apart for service publicly before the church and with the church's general approval. The idea of there being a general approval I take from verse 2 where Paul says that they must be above reproach. That's amongst the people of God. In verse 2 is what he's talking about. The the people would sense, you know, this person is one who fits the criteria and would be in agreement with uh, this appointment. Um, they've seen his lifestyle, they, they know this person, and they're in agreement with what's being uh, presented as far as this person being a, a pastor or an overseer. Um, so that's one thing I would say in closing. And the last thing. I just wanted to point out, uh, if I can find my last page here, 
is that those who are in a position of oversight are not beyond criticism or rebuke. Paul brings this out later in the letter in chapter 5, 19 and 20, where he says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all. So it's possible that a person that's in that position needs to be rebuked so that the rest also may be fearful of sinning. So I won't go into that now. I'm just making the point simply to say that no church office bearer should ever consider himself answerable to no one. You don't become in this position and say, all right, now I'm at the top of the pile and I'm in charge. Uh, Where there's a plurality of elders, each is accountable to the other, and that's what the New Testament teaches, that there should be a plurality of elders whenever possible. But the elders are also accountable to the people of that local congregation, the church. It might, it might sound spiritual to say that a leader is accountable only to God, but that's actually a very dangerous and wrong attitude. Actually, we're all accountable to one another, and we never get above that accountability. So, I'll close if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work. It's a fine work, a noble work he desires to do. And elders should be properly honored. It's an honorable thing. We should all be careful about fault finding toward those God has put in, in leadership, but that does not uh, place them above any accountability. We'll deal with that more when we get to chapter 5 where, where we'll deal with those verses. I think one of the best ways to determine the quality of leadership is by seeing an elder who genuinely loves Christ and genu- genu- genuinely loves and serves those he seeks to lead. I just say this in, in terms of if you're going to uh, a new community if you're moving and uh, looking for a church take a little time to look at the qualifications of the people that are leading that church see if they fit this criteria you can't tell that in one or two times going to play going to a place but uh, that's certainly part of trying to determine is this where God wants me because you want to be in a place that has leadership in accordance with what we've just read here. So uh, that's one of the offices of the New Testament church, that is being a overseer or elder. And next week, Lord willing, or next time I speak anyway, we'll look at the other office that's recognized in the New Testament church, that of deacons beginning at verse 8. So, let's close in prayer. Father, we are thankful that uh, you've set up your church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And one of the means you've set up for keeping Satan from prevailing 
is having godly leadership. And we thank you for that. Uh, I'll pray for myself and the other elders that you'd help us more and more to fit these criteria and uh, examine ourselves in light of what's said here. And we just uh, pray that you'd bring us on as a church, uh, keep us from error, help us to walk in your truth, help us to more and more love Christ and love one another. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We're going to sing nothing but the blood. <laughs>